Welcome to the Keeping It Israel podcast with Jeff Futers, where Jeff and his guests talk everything Israel as it relates to Christian faith and the church. If you are a Christian and you stand with Israel, you will be encouraged and challenged by this podcast. And if you're not so sure about the whole Israel thing, you need to learn how your faith connects with Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's Jeff with today's guest. Well, welcome to the podcast today. And instead of a guest today, I'm going to be sharing with you a teaching that I did on the Magdala Stone a few years back when we had the amazing opportunity to have this uh, replica of the actual stone found at the synagogue in Magdala on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so I hope you enjoy this teaching today. It is something that will enlighten you in terms of archaeology and its impact on how we understand faith but also there's some amazing connections when it comes to our faith in Jesus as well. And so uh, just enjoy this teaching and we'll chat a little bit again at the end. Thanks for being with us today. Let's move to the Magdala Stone. This is uh, something that I've been excited about in a conversation sitting on the shores of the Sea of Galilee last uh, June, I guess it was, early June when Chris and I were there together. Uh, We were talking to Father Amon Kelly And Father Kelly just kind of randomly said, you know, we have a replica of the stone uh, that was found in the synagogue that's uh, traveling around North America right now. Would you ever be interested in using it? And I thought to myself, well, yes, yes, I would. And so uh, that was the beginning. And Friday, just yesterday, uh, we like to do things last minute. Uh, I drove to Buffalo, got the stone, had an interesting conversation with customs agents coming across the border. And, uh, you know, we... Yeah, I don't know if you've ever traveled with anything like this before, but it's kind of hard to explain. Anyhow, I want to to talk to you about this, uh, not only the the place where this stone was discovered, but also the significance of the markings on the stone. And I want to encourage you, uh, afterwards when we have our break, uh, we have one more session and then a break, and um, I want to encourage you to come up close and sort of go around it. You're going to see some of the markings in a diagram that we'll show you on the screen, but uh, this really is an incredible, incredible piece that was found. So let me just tell you a little bit about it. First of all, though, let me say uh, I want to give special thanks to uh, Magdala, to the Israeli Antiquities Authority who have made it possible for us to be able to have this replica here, and also the Pontifical Institute Notre Dame of Jerusalem Center and, uh, and, and the, the site at, at Magdala as well. They have all made it possible for this to be here, and so we, we want to say thank you to them. Uh, then also, I would just sort of at the beginning, okay, I'm not going to cite sources all the way through this. I don't want this to be really academic, but I want to let you know that I got a lot of information from a couple of, of journals, uh, Novum Testamentum, uh, one by Mordecai Avium, and another by Richard Baucom, I think is how you would pronounce his name. These are academic journals that cover various aspects of New Testament study. And uh, these are the sources that I, that I got much of this information from. And also from Stephen Fine, who is the professor, professor, <laughs> professor of Jewish history, director of the Arch of Titus Project. And also uh, he is part of the Yeshiva University Center for Israel Studies. And so these are Uh, the sources that we have drawn much of this information from that I want to just teach you over the next 20-25 minutes. I was hoping to have a little longer, and so if I seem like I'm rushing, I probably am. And we'll try and get through all of this, and I want to start like this, okay? So, a rabbi 
a fisherman, Mary Magdalene, and Jesus all walk into a synagogue. <laughs> kind of sounds like a joke, doesn't it? You're waiting for the punchline. Well, it does sound like the beginning to a joke, but I'm not actually joking, although there's an incredible punchline, and I want to get to that by the, by the end of our time together. The synagogue at Magdala was discovered in 2009 when the Pontifical Institute Jerusalem prepared to begin construction of their hospitality center on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, as they began to dig uh, to build this hospitality center, they had a, a big hospitality center in Jerusalem. It's still there, Notre Dame. If you have a chance ever to go visit it, it's, it's quite something. And they wanted one in the Galilee. And so they purchased this property on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and they began to, to dig to build this, this hotel and hospitality center that they were going to have for pilgrims to Galilee. Well, six inches under the surface, they began to discover an entire community there on their property. Really very remarkable. And in 09, they discovered the synagogue. And so there's, there's a number of things, but, but I want to get to that in a second. We first hear uh, about this, this town of Magdala uh, through someone we know from Scripture. We hear about Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8 as Jesus and his entourage are traveling around the region of the Galilee from town to town. And in Luke 8, verses 1 to 3, it says this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And so this instance we find in Scripture, Mary Magdalene. We also find her later around the events of the resurrection. And those are the only two times that we hear of her in Scripture. But we know she holds a significant place because she's one of the women who supports Jesus and his ministry. Well, what was found in 2009 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee is believed to be her hometown near modern-day Migdal. Why? Because Mary's last name wasn't Magdalene. Uh, there were many, many Marys in those days, and how they would identify Marys from different communities, they would say Mary of Magdala, or Mary of, of uh, you know, Nazareth, Mary of Magdala. And so, not her last name, but where she was from. And so, we have a, a photo here, an aerial view of this site today. And you can see the development that's happening uh, there behind me. You can see all of, of what's taking place and also some of what has been uncovered. And down in, the, down in this front sort of bottom section here, you'll see a, a roof, a white roof. That's where they discovered the synagogue. To the right there is uh, the, the fishing, fish processing plant and there's um, beautiful, beautiful ritual baths there that they have discovered. Very, very uh, sort of high-end homes and then uh, another residential area. I don't have time to go into all of the details about the site because I want to talk about the stone. But it's a very, very significant discovery. And this is why. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus, as he was in the region of Galilee, went from town to town speaking in their synagogues. And here in Magdala, they discovered one of very few synagogues that date to the time, the exact time of Jesus. The last time that this town was inhabited was 68 AD because 
uh, of the, the Jewish revolt that occurred at that time, and the Romans ended up crushing that revolt, and the Jews were driven out. And so 68 AD was the last time that this town was inhabited. And we know this because of coins that have been found there and so on. There's just so much information that I can't really get into it all. But I want to talk to you about, about the stone. So Magdala was a first century town. It was the home of Mary Magdalene. But this is also significant because of someone else who we know who was around during the first century. And you know that that is Jesus. Jesus would have visited Magdalene. We have no specific reference to it in Scripture that he was there. But we know that he was good friends with Mary Magdalene. We know that he taught in the synagogues all around that region. And so we believe, I believe, there is a 95% chance that Jesus was not only in this community, but sat in this synagogue with his friends. Isn't that amazing? So, Let's move to the stone and why the stone is significant. It's been said that this Magdala stone is the most significant discovery related to the second temple. Uh, Aviam, one of the sources that I mentioned, says this, this Migdal stone with its decorations is the first and only collection of symbols of the temple to show the importance of the temple to the people who frequented the synagogue there in the community of Galilee. I want to go to another diagram, and this is a diagram of the tabernacle, uh, also the furniture that would be in the temple as well. And uh, you probably, can you, can you read that? Okay, good. So, you know, we have the outer court, the altar of burnt offerings, the brazen labor, and then an entrance into the most holy place where we have the, the candlestick to the, to the left there, or the, the menorah. To the right, the table of showbread. Further in, the altar of incense, more in the center. Uh, and then, of course, beyond that, there is the veil and the holy of holies. And as we talk about the stone, I want you to think about how the furniture is arranged uh, in the temple. Because the markings on this are, are very significant and there is a connection made between the local synagogue in Galilee and the, the temple in Jerusalem. And this is what archaeologists believe about this particular stone. So uh, can we begin talking about the stone? All right, I've got, you can see the stone. And again, I want to encourage you at the break, come up close, get around it, have a look. But I'll have some diagrams that we're going to put up. And the first one, uh, I think, will be there right about now. And this is the facade of the stone or the front, and that's what's facing you currently, okay? Now, we begin with the facade, and on, on the facade you can see two pillars on either sides with bases and capitals, and they are, they are underneath an arch. You can see it probably more clear in the diagram behind me. Underneath an arch, and experts believe that if this facade of the stone was discovered in its original place, which they believe that it was, they, they call that, you know, discovered in situ, in place, that where it was facing was southward towards, guess where? Towards Jerusalem. It was facing toward Jerusalem and the place of the Holy Temple. And what this front side essentially is giving us is a view inside the, the inner hall or that most holy place that we saw in the diagram together. Are you following me? So it's like you're standing in the outer courts, you're looking through the, the arch into the most holy place. 
One of the main things you can probably see on the front there, what's the main thing that you see on the front of the stone there? The menorah, right. The menorah, the front of the stone depicts the oldest carved image of the second temple's seven-branched menorah ever found. That's what we're looking at right here, okay? And then beside it, on either side, two amphorae, they call them, or essentially vessels, on either side of the menorah. So I want to go to Zechariah chapter 4. And uh, just if you are, have your Bible, you can open there and follow along. Zechariah 4, 1 to, 4, 1 to 14. It says, the, the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. This is Zechariah's vision of the, the golden candlesticks, okay? He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He said, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. And so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. It's good, right? Now just jump down a little bit with me to verse number 10. It says, who dares despise the day of small things since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. And then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out gold and oil? And he replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. And so he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, when archaeologists look at the stone and at the, the menorah and how these two vessels are arranged, one of the theories that they have come to is that Maybe this relates to Zechariah's vision. So there's a possibility. So first of all, the menorah, what does it stand for? It stands for light, of course. But it also is mentioned here that they are the, it's the seven eyes of the Lord looking to and fro, searching the land. Uh, it was mentioned here in verse 10. The seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth. And so the menorah is representative of, of uh, what God sees as he, as he looks over the land. And then they surmise that the two vessels perhaps might relate to the two olive trees, that, that there would be oil in those vessels and, and uh, you know, the oil would be required to, to fuel the lamp as well. So that's one interpretation. Uh, another interpretation though is that the two vessels, so we know the menorah is important, right? The menorah, it's one of the, one of the most common symbols in Jewish art uh, that, that's found all over as they, as they discover new archaeological discoveries. But these two vessels, or amphorae, uh, you know, there's another possibility. They say that they could be the flagons of wine that are associated with the table of showbread. Uh, Exodus 25 and 29 talks about these, make its plates and dishes of pure gold as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of the offerings. And then in Exodus 37 and verse 16, it says again, they made pure, from pure gold the articles for the table, its plates and dishes and bowls and its pitchers for the pouring out of drink offerings, okay? So there's another possibility. These, these flagons of wine were used in the, the pouring out of drink offerings, the, some of the libation ceremonies, and they also 
uh, could be significant because of their association with the showbread table. Now, there's one more thing on the face of the stone that I haven't mentioned yet. Does anybody see what it is? See the, the square kind of at the base of the menorah? Okay, so the square at the base of the menorah, we think that possibly this is one of two things. Some have said, because of its dimensions, it doesn't look perfectly square. So some say, well, it's not perfectly square, so it can't be the altar of incense, okay? However, uh, I wanna come back to that in a second. But because it's a little bit rectangular, some have surmised that it might be the table of showbread. And from the reading that I've done, I've, I've read sort of both sides, I think that more likely it is the, the altar of incense that is pictured here because uh, of something that I wanna tell you about the top of the stone a little later, okay? So can you wait for that? Okay, good. So we have the menorah, we have underneath it, the altar of incense is, is what we're surmising. Now, the menorah didn't stand on top of the altar of incense, so people have said, well, that doesn't make sense. It lo looks like a base for the menorah. However, because of the space that the artist had to work with on the front of the stone, things got a little sort of squishy there. And so what archeologists believe is that they, they put the altar of incense there uh, just because of a, a space issue. They wanted the menorah to be, uh, to be the, the more prominent piece on the front, all right? So those are essentially some of the things that we're talking about on the facade of the stone. So we have, looking in from the outer courts, through the arch, we're looking into the most holy place, and we see uh, the menorah, we see the, the flagons of wine, or perhaps vessels of oil used to fuel the menorah. I'm not gonna sort of say which is which, because truthfully, we just don't know. Okay, but there's some interesting symbolism that we find here. But I want to, to uh, continue on. So that square table, I don't think it's the table of showbread. I think probably the altar of incense. And so we're gonna sort of go with that. I wanna move to the next uh, diagram, which is the sides of the stone. And uh, the two sides, the side facing me and the side opposite me are I, pretty much identical. I mean, as, as identical as you can get working freehand uh, in stone. And essentially what we have on the sides of the stone are, again, pillars and arches. Now, some have said that in the middle of these arches that, uh, you know, maybe that's sheaves of corn and it talks about uh, fertility and, and the fertility of the land and so on. But I think if you look closer, you, you could notice that perhaps they are a place where two other arches meet. Can you see that? So that they're kind of like arches inside of arches. And what archeologists are, are telling me is this, that this is sort of representative of standing outside in the outside of the, the outer court and looking in through the temple. So through the outer court and into the most holy place, okay? Because we can't see into the holy of holies, right? That's, that's something we never see. So I would sort of suggest that perhaps that's what we're looking at here. That, so the, the facade of the stone is like standing in the, in the outer court looking into the most holy place. But on the sides of the stone, it's representative of, of looking in through from outside of the outer court in through to the, to the most holy place. Does that make sense? 
That's the most explanation I'm going to give you of the side. Now, there is one other little item on the end here, and there's sort of two possibilities. Uh, some of them say that it kind of looks like one of those little lamps. If you've ever been in Israel, you can buy these little clay lamps with a handle, and they kind of almost look like Aladdin's lamp, right? Little, little lamp. So some say that maybe it's symbolic of, of one of the lamps that were used. Uh, others perhaps say that it's a container for, for incense, for the altar of incense. And then there's one other uh, possibility, and I want to talk to you about that when I get to the top of the stone. Is that okay? Which I think we're going to move to uh, right now. So on the top of the stone, we have the most art here of, of all of this. And uh, I've only got about eight minutes left, so I'm going to kind of, kind of get through this as quickly as I can. Is everybody with me so far? Nobody's gone to sleep yet? Okay, good. Good, I'm glad. So on the top of the stone, we have a number of things. I don't want to go through them sort of, uh, sort of slowly so we get all of this. You'll see in the very center uh, something that they call a rosette in Jewish art. It's uh, six petals that form what looks like a flower, okay? So you've got six, a six-petaled rosette in the center, and then all around the circumference of that, you have six more uh, petals, that, that make that a complete circle. So what's six plus six? 12. Is 12 an important number in scripture? Why? 12 tribes of Israel. Wow, you, right off the bat. 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples of Jesus. There's, there's other 12s in scriptural numbers as well. But the 12 tribes of Israel are, are what we're going to sort of focus here. Archaeologists believe that this is not just a, a pretty flower in the middle, but it's representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, that it represents, you know, God's people. And uh, I'll, I'll get to a little bit more significance there as well. Then if you look outside of there, we have on either side, what, is, what do those things look like on the sides? Sorry? Trees, palm trees, right? What, the palm trees in Israel, there's a lot of date palms in Israel where they, where they grow dates, okay? Uh, archaeologists again tell us, there's a couple theories. Uh, one archaeologist, I believe it's Avian, believes that these could actually be uh, the rakes that they used to, to rake the ash off the, off the altar of sacrifice, that, you know, to remove the coals, that... They're actually sort of rake-shaped, and, and the diagonal lines aren't the same as, as the straight rings around a, a date palm, and so that's, that's his theory. However, it seems a little bit odd that they would put them on the top of the stone when the, the altar of sacrifice was actually in the outer court, right? Not even in the most holy place. So, so there's, there's some, some, I guess, theorizing that goes on there. I think of what I've read that most likely there are palm trees and that they are representative of fertility, the fertility of the land. When God talks about the land of Israel, he talks over and over about a land you know, that's flowing with milk and honey. You know what kind of honey they have mostly in Israel? Date honey, that's right. It's, it's mostly honey from dates. And so uh, we have sort of that imagery as well. So you've got fertility, you have the, the complete land or, or the complete people of Israel, God's people, 12 tribes of Israel. And then there are 12 other interesting shapes here. We've got 
the, the things that look sort of like hearts at the top, you got three at the top and three more at the bottom. Then there's uh, squares, rectangles with diamonds down here at the bottom. Again, rectangles with a diamond and with a cross. By the way, when they discovered this, a lot of Christians got really excited because there's a, there's a cross in there. But it really has no significance to Jesus because it's, it's uh, uh, you know, it's first century before Calvary, before all of those kind of things. It's not, it's not a Christian symbol, although it's, it's interesting to think about the possibility, okay? Uh, but archaeologists, when you talk to them, say, no, no, that's not what that is. It's just two lines that intersect. So we don't want to get too excited about that yet. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of these shapes on the bottom, okay? And five on the top. What's seven plus five? 12. So here is what I want to get to. Remember, there was something missing on the front of the stone from, from the, the most holy place. We have the altar of incense, we have the menorah, but what, what didn't we have on the front of the stone? The table of showbread. So the archaeologists, what, what one of them believes, Balcom in particular, says this. He says, I believe that the stone is actually representative, the entire stone is representative of the table of showbread. And that the items that are sitting on the top actually are the, the showbread, the 12 loaves of showbread that the priests change every Sabbath. Uh, there's, there's new loaves of bread that are put in there, okay? So this is the significance of the top of the stone. They believe it's representative of the entire table of showbread. That would also perhaps explain some of the decoration around the upper rim, uh, which, would, which would help us there as well. So here's about the showbread table. Leviticus 24, verses 6 to 8 says, Arrange them in two stacks. That This is the loaves. Two stacks, six in each stack, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And by each stack put some pure incense as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. So there's some mystery as to why they're arranged the way they are. Okay, They're not in stacks of six. There's a five and there's a seven. Lots of postulating about that. Uh, it could be uh, you know, division between uh, the, the different mothers of Israel, Leah, and Rachel. Uh, you could sort of read some of that in there. I don't have time to get into it all. This, this is what we're thinking, that perhaps the top of the table is, the entire stone actually is representative of the table of, of showbread. I have to move to the, to the back part of the stone. We're going to go to that last drawing. And this one is very interesting, okay? Where am I? There are two wheels. Can you see the wheels? Now notice one of them has a, a visible hub Okay, it's the round circle. And over here, we've got the one that's sort of shaded. And that's because on the stone, you'll see it when you go and look. The second one, it's kind of recessed in. So I'm going to tell you why we think that, that this might be what it is. So there's essentially we've got uh, nice decorations all the way around. And then underneath, we have these, again, six and six uh, items, 12 total of these sort of triangular figures. And what archaeologists tell us is this, okay? The wheels are 
something that represents what is called in Jewish tradition the divine chariot, okay? The divine chariot found in, uh, I think it's Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10 and 43. We've got sort of two instances. In Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel witnesses the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. Remember those texts? And it departs on the fiery wheels of the cherubim. So you've got, you've got two wheels of a chariot, one that you can see the hub of the wheel, the other that you can see the, the inside. And, and so it's like you're looking through a chariot. You can see this wheel and you can see this wheel, okay? Like so, does that make sense? So you're looking at this one from, you're looking at the inside edge of that wheel and that's why it looks the way that it looks. This is what archeologists are telling us, all right? The triangular shapes underneath are shapes that are often used in Jewish art to represent fire. So we have the fiery chariot, the divine chariot, the chariot of the divine presence, or the uh, Merkava, as they, as they call it in, in the Mishnah. And so that's what's represented on the back of the chariot. So uh, I wanna just go really quickly to the very end here. I wanna make sure I don't sort of miss anything, but my time is just about gone. So when you're looking at the stone, you have a complete representation here of the temple in Jerusalem. You're looking into the most holy place from the outer court. The only thing that we're not seeing are the, the items in the outer court, okay? The, the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. But you're seeing the menorah, you're seeing the altar of incense, uh, you're seeing these uh, flagons of, of wine or oil, whichever you decide. And that's the great thing about this. You can decide because nobody really knows for sure. Uh, but then uh, on the sides, of course, it's as though we're looking in from the outside all the way through. And then on the top, we have the table of showbread, the entire stone essentially representing the table of showbread is the interpretation that I'm going to go with for today's teaching. And then on the back, what do you think is represented on the back? What's missing? The Holy of Holies, where the divine presence of God resides, okay? Now, you've got this Stone sitting in a synagogue in Galilee, facing Jerusalem. And so this has caused archaeologists to, to just think all kinds of amazing things. There is, a, there is a connection from the local synagogue to the Jewish temple. And I want to read you just a couple interesting quotes. Uh, but here, let me, I just wrote, first and foremost, it's important. You know, I, I asked this question, what does it all mean and why is it important? First and foremost, it's important because of the parallels that it draws to the Jewish temple. The existence of the stone in this first century synagogue is evidence that there was a deep connection between the local synagogue and the Jerusalem temple, and an effort was being made to keep before the Jewish residents of Magdala the importance and prominence of the temple, but also the importance of recognizing the divine presence, the presence of Almighty God in their midst. This connection to the temple that the stone implies is coherent with a number of features of early synagogues that have been observed by many scholars. Number one, indications that the synagogue was regarded as a sacred space. Two, evidence of the uh, mikvao in proximity to the synagogues, the ritual baths, also tie this in as well. And then thirdly, some evidence for the practice of prayer in the synagogues as well. 
The Migdal stone shows us, or the Magdala stone shows us this as well, that at the center of the assembly, powerful symbolism reminded the assembled people of their connection between this space and the unique presence of Yahweh in the Jerusalem temple. The symbolism in no way competes with or substitutes for the Jerusalem temple, but forges a strong connection with it. Viewing the arcades of the temple courts on the two long sides of the stone, the people might even have felt their own sacred space with its own colonnade to be another court, as it were, of the Jerusalem temple. And so the Magdala stone takes us a long way from the approach of scholars who stress that Galilean synagogues, whether as assembled people or as buildings for assembly, serve primarily the purposes of local government and other community affairs and, and you know, play down the activities of Torah reading and prayer. This is not to deny that no doubt many forms of community business took place in the synagogue, but the stone implies that the community's life was self-consciously orientated to their covenant relationship with the God who dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem. Isn't that great? It's amazing, right? Yes. So here's the irony. The stone indicates that a sense of the divine presence of Almighty God was very important to the people of Magdala, And yet, if Jesus visited Magdala, as we assume he did, and even taught in their synagogue, as the Gospels tell us over and over and over again that Jesus did in all the towns and villages that he visited in those areas, then the divine presence was actually right in their midst, and many of them did not even understand or recognize him as such. John tells us that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to those he gave power to become the children of God. Amen? So, a rabbi, a fisherman, Jesus, and Mary Magdalene all walk into a synagogue. And sadly, only some of them know that they are with the Logos, the living word, the divine presence of God incarnate. They're looking to a stone, and Jesus is right among them. Hallelujah. Well, thank you for being with me on the podcast today. And of course, today was a little different because we had no guest, but I hope you enjoyed the teaching on the significance of the artwork on the Magdala Stone and how it connects to the temple in Jerusalem and the divine presence of Almighty God. Uh, I think it's amazing also to think about that connection that we talked about, you know, to, to Jesus, the fact that Jesus would have been a regular visitor at the synagogue there in Magdala. So really, really hope that that was uh, informative to you and uh, made an impact today. We just remind you of a number of things that we've got going on. Now, I will say this, when we travel to Israel, and we hope that uh, tours can resume again in the next year or so, uh, certainly by early 2022, we would be planning a tour to Israel. When we travel there, we visit the site at Magdala. We never miss it. And you can go and see that stone in person. And we would encourage you to come along with us and experience that for yourself. Also want to say that if you are someone who enjoys archaeology, someone who found that interesting today, uh, our Miraculous Victories of Israel documentary series is out and available now for purchase. You can find out all about that on uh, the website MiraculousVictories.com. And uh, this is a documentary series where we just talk about how God over and over again through the centuries in the Old Testament 
Testament all, all the way to modern times has stepped in on behalf of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel and delivered them time and time again. Uh, that's just uh, an incredible fact of history. And we document that in this series, Miraculous Victories of Israel. We encourage you to go and check that out. Don't forget that we are a charity. First Century Foundations is a ministry here in Canada and in the United States that helps ministries all over the land of Israel. And if you would be interested in engaging with us and making a donation to assist ministries in Israel, we would love for you to go to our webpage, firstcenturyfoundations.com forward slash donate. And you can find out there how you can make your secure online donation. We will receipt you at the end of the year for your charitable tax uh, receipt for your income tax. And so uh, please check that out. And we would just encourage you to engage with us in that way. I'm so thankful that you joined with us today. And uh, I hope that you will continue to listen to our podcast, find out more about our ministry. We encourage you to do that. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. You can search First Century Foundations and find our YouTube channel there. We would love to have you subscribe. Great to have you with us today. Again, remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel. Thank you.